Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Before this episode, I didn't know a whole lot about Harry Houdini, mostly because I've never had much respect for magicians, and frankly, they've always creeped me out. Never had a lot of interest in magic, but I gotta say, this episode changed me. Definitely find them somewhat less creepy now, at least some of them. A lot more respect for the masters of this craft, and no one was a greater master of the craft of magic than Harry Houdini. I'd obviously heard of him before, you know, I knew he was some kind of escape artist, and I knew that, uh, well, that's, that's actually about all I knew. I didn't realize how truly famous he was in his day. You know, I didn't know that he was an illusionist in addition to an escape artist or that his brother was also a well-known magician of his day, touring as Hardeen. Sounds like a magician name. And I definitely didn't know that he devoted the final decade of his life to exposing mediums, psychics, clairvoyants, and other spiritualists as fake and fraudulent. And why did he do this? Well, for a variety of reasons, but partly because he was a mama's boy in the best way. He was extremely close to his mother, took great care of her after his father died, and when she died in 1913, he was virtually inconsolable. And his skepticism of those who advertised an ability to contact the dead, those who preyed on the sorrow of the grief-stricken, it turned to hatred. He despised them. He would have loved to have been able to contact Mama and know that she was out there somewhere, know that she was okay, and he hated the pieces of shit who took this desire and tried to monetize that grief by pretending to contact the deceased. Many people were skeptical of spiritualists, but they didn't have his highly trained illusionist eye that could consistently reveal the tricks of their trade no matter how skilled they were at concealing them. Houdini became so obsessed with exposing these con artists that his final touring show was actually called Three Shows in One, Magic, Escapes, and Fraud Mediums Exposed. So let's get magical, you time suckers. Let's get skeptical, you spiritualists. Put your Ouija board away, and let's find out if any of you can escape the powerful pull of the great Houdini on today's Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) 
Happy Monday, fellow time suckers. Time to get sucked. Time to get your suck on. <laughs> Hope you had a wonderful weekend. I know things are crazy in the world right now, and, I, and someday, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll dig into all the divisive events we're currently bearing witness to, but not today, not for a while. No one's ready to understand the other side's arguments, my opinion. So whether you're, you're getting your protest march on or, or whether you're just, you know, staying at home and, and, and hoping or, or waiting for the storm to pass, let time suck be a sweet little escape into a different world, at least for the time being. A uh, big thanks to Time Sucker Tessa Byers for sending me down this week's suck. Houdini and spiritualism. All right, when I saw that combo in her message, I was immediately intrigued. And thanks to everyone else who sent in suggestions this past week. They've all been added to the list. I look over before heading down some strange web hole. Uh, most have come via email at admin at timesuckpodcast.com, where you can send some of your own topics if you don't know, you know where to message me. And thanks for all the kind messages, by the way, I received as well, uh, telling me how much uh, you've enjoyed this little creative endeavor uh, we are all uh, adventuring with. You guys are the fucking best. All right, let's get into it. Houdini, the dude who used to sneak out of straitjackets and shark tanks or some shit like that a long, long time ago, right? The object of hero worship of magicians everywhere. Houdini, the guy Michael Paul Glazer, the original Starsky of Starsky and Hutch, played in the 1976 ABC made-for-TV movie that no one watched called The Great Houdinis. Houdini! The guy, young Will Wheaton, of later Star Trek fame, played in a 1987 ABC made-for-TV movie called Young Harry Houdini that no one watched. After Will starred in one of the best movies of the 80s, Stephen King's 1986 coming-of-age tale, Stand By Me. ABC loved making shitty movies about Houdini. Houdini! The man Jonathan Sheck. Jimmy, from That Thing You Do, portrayed in the 1998 TNT made-for-TV movie called Houdini that no one reviewed, and only 21% of audience members barely liked him Rotten Tomatoes. Houdini. The man Adrian Brody portrayed in the 2014 History Channel miniseries you probably never realized was ever, ever made, called, you guessed it, Houdini. Variety magazine said of the miniseries, long before the credits roll, it's hard not to wish Houdini would simply disappear. <laughs> That's not exactly a glowing review. Well, long before uh, Houdini was the inspiration for a litany of terrible and forgettable television programming, the man led a storied life, one that we should uh, get familiar with before diving into the whole magician versus spiritualist battle that originally caught my attention. So behold, the wonders of a time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. start with 1874. Harry Houdini was born Eric Weitz in Budapest, Hungary on March 24, 1874 to Mayor Samuel Weitz, a rabbi, and Cecilia Steiner. He was the middle child in a household of seven children, and in 1878, when young Eric was four, the family moved to a hotbed of 19th century Jewish culture. You guessed it, Appleton, Wisconsin. Of course they did. Appleton, a.k.a. New Jerusalem. Hopefully you know that's not true. Not true about the hotbed of Jewish activity. No, he did move to Appleton. Mayer moved his family to this uh, extremely white and Gentile city to be its first rabbi at the Zion Reform Jewish Congregation Synagogue. That must have been a lot of fun for Eric and his siblings to constantly explain to locals that Jewish people, you know, do not, in fact, sacrifice Christian babies to the devil or celebrate helping Jesus, you know, getting killed or, or control the world's finances or whatever other horribly anti-Semitic messages undoubtedly floated around town at that time. 
Now, while many historians agree that Houdini's father moved to Appleton because of a job offer, there is a far more interesting motive rumored to be the reason Harry's family settled in America. Check this out. There's a lot of historical speculation that Harry's father had challenged a Hungarian prince to a sword duel for insulting him, and then they fight, he kills the prince, and he has to flee the country. That's right. Fucking sword duel. How cool is that? As far-fetched as that sounds, sword duels were actually fairly common occurrence in the late 19th century Budapest, kind of in the same way that gun duels were a uh, you know, somewhat common occurrence in 19th century American Wild West. So this version of the story you know, says that the family hid in London before using family connections to sneak away to Appleton, Wisconsin, because, you know, that's, that's where the Hungarian monarchy is least expected to go look for, for Rabbi Appleton. Harry himself kind of liked the dual version, and I don't blame him. You know, hard to beat. Uh, you know, we had to move because my dad killed a prince with a sword in a sword fight. That's top-shelf dad story right there. I wish I had a sword story under my belt. So, okay, so anyway, sword duel or no, uh, four, uh, four years later, in December of 1882, when Eric is eight, his dad loses his job at the congregation, apparently mostly over an inability to speak English. Uh, who knew? Only speaking Hungarian and Yiddish, maybe a little German, uh, would be enough to get by in 1870s Appleton. God, it's crazy, right? Family heads to Milwaukee and enters what was not, according to Houdini, the best period of his childhood. He says uh, in his words, One morning my father awoke to find himself thrown upon the world, his long locks of hair having silvered in service, with seven children to feed, without a position, and without any visible means of support. We thereon moved to Milwaukee, where such hardships and hunger became our lot. The less said on that subject, the better. <coughs> Excuse me. The family lived in Milwaukee for five years, a period of young Harry's life he never liked to talk about. His father took whatever work he could find, and he and some of his siblings worked to support the family, too. When Eric wasn't uh, working as a bicycle messenger or a shoe shiner, you know, the exact type of jobs I picture poor kids doing at the end of the 19th century in America, he also had time to take some boxing lessons, learn how to swim, hold his breath in the nearby river, begin to develop the athleticism he'd need to become a famous escape artist later in life. Sorry about the dry throat, man. It always strikes me in the middle of an episode. Apparently, he was a hell of a boxer, uh, supposedly beating the ass of a young Mickey Riley, a kid who would grow up to become a respected prize fighter. Mickey Riley was the only person who four times clobbered the famous Battling Nelson, the future lightweight champion of the world. And young Harry whipped the man who whipped Nelson. There's a great quote from uh, Patsy McCartan, the local boxer and a fireman who taught both Mickey and young Houdini to fight. <laughs> and what a fucking great uh, boxing coach name, by the way. Patsy McCartan. Of course that dude taught boxers. Patsy McCartan doesn't work as a seamstress, you know? Hey, pa Patsy McCartan, can you, get, can you get that vest finished up? Uh-uh. He, he fights fires, and he teaches kids to fight the McCartan way. That's the McCartan way. Fire and fist. If he, was alive, if he had a place today, he'd have an Instagram account. At fire and fist, Patsy McCartan, trainer to the stars. Anyway, that's what he says about young Houdini. He says, Nelson was so mean he'd fight for a ham sandwich, he, he tells a sports writer in the Milwaukee Sentinel. But he was afraid of Mickey Riley, and Riley was afraid of that kid Eric Weiss. Eric Weiss, a.k.a. Harry Houdini. It's easy to understand how Harry got the confidence to become a master showman, dude. The dude was a badass. Well, young Harry was, was mo most likely uh, first exposed to showmanship and entertainers in Milwaukee as well. Uh, circuses were a big deal back then. Uh, young Harry undoubtedly read about them uh, a lot in the paper. I guess they were a big deal mostly because, you know, uh, TV hadn't been invented yet. Once TV came along, a lot of people were like, fuck the circus. People like myself. But anyway, 
uh, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he, they were a big deal. He read about them in this paper he delivered, and he surely read about General Tom Thumb, the pint-sized, two-foot, 11-inch star of P.T. Barnum's Circus, being saved from one of the worst hotel files, fires in America's history, the Newhall House Fire in downtown Milwaukee. He was saved along with his tiny wife in early 1883. Over 70 people didn't survive that one. I don't know why I needed to add that his wife was tiny, but she was. I wasn't being erroneous, but I could have just said wife. But then I feel like, I feel like if I would have just said wife, then you would have pictured this little two foot eleven inch guy with like a five foot seven inch woman, and you would have been like, "How the fuck does that work? How does how do the mechanics of that work?" They probably work fine. I'm probably the only one that would have thought of that. Okay, while he didn't uh, while he didn't talk about them a lot, Harry never forgot about his early Milwaukee years. When Houdini played Milwaukee in 1916, he gave a special show for 500 newsboys. That's awesome. I always love reading about stuff like that. You know, he gives back. Doesn't forget when he gets famous. Harry also became an occasional street performer in Milwaukee, developing a two-man act with a young contortionist, Herman Krauss, who went on to star in the Follies Berger under the name Adonis Ames. They performed for free, him and Adonis, on the Milwaukee Bridge over the Milwaukee River and later at Jacob Litt's Dime Museum. Uh, at age nine, in 1883, Eric and some neighborhood friends established a five-tent circus as well. Wearing red woolen stockings, he billed himself as Eric, the Prince of the, the, Prince of the Air. Yeah, he actually tried out some uh, trapeze stuff at that time, man. So, you know, he had big dreams as a kid. He had big dreams. Uh, and he was uh, during the Milwaukee years that he also stopped going to school so he could work more to help the family. Uh, Houdini had no formal education past the third grade, which makes him all the more impressive to me. Dude got a doctorate and kicking ass at life, only a third grade formal education. And I actually just found out uh, a couple hours ago after sharing this week's topic with my, with my grandma uh, we were talking, and uh, I never knew that her her father, my great-grandpa John, John Berman of Riggins, Idaho, well, yeah, that's where he lived. He was from Sweden, but he was also never educated past the third grade, uh, moved himself from Sweden to America at the age of 18, provided for his family, bought himself a beautiful plot of land, and built a wonderful home in Riggins, uh, became foreman of the local sawmill, uh, the long since uh, burned to the ground and gone away sawmill sparked my curiosity in the world around me when he gave me uh, national geographics to read in grade school that's my that's my best memories of my grandpa john is reading national geographics man i, I would have lunch in his house just about every school day from third to eighth grade and they just lived a few blocks from the school actually probably less than that actually probably like a block about the distance and, I, and i'd walk down uh, we didn't have blocks and rigs if you're wondering why i'm confused about this it's just a small town without a grid system um 500 people the little canyon on the salmon river in idaho but uh yeah, I'd have lunch every day there. I'd sit in one recliner and read about, you know, stuff in National Geographic or maybe an almanac as he would sit in, in his recliner and do the same. And uh, and then we'd talk about it afterwards, you know. Just a very curious, intellectual man who, just like uh, Houdini, never never made it past the third grade. Love stuff like that. So, you know, uh, Houdini, he may have been poor and, and somewhat miserable uh, in Milwaukee, but the seeds of who'd he become, who he, he would later become, uh, pretty much all planted in Milwaukee. And then in 1886, at the age of 12 years old, Harry leaves Milwaukee in search of better work to properly help out his family. Now, no one knows exactly where he went. He didn't really like talking about this uh, and his, you know, with, to biographers and, and such and just people in general. But uh, Texas and Missouri pop up a lot as probable places. He made it all the way from Wisconsin. And this shit just blows me away because, like, my 11-year-old son, just one year than Harry when he did this, he wouldn't make it 12 hours on his own. Like, he would die of fright. He would just – he would be found in the fetal position – and they'd be like, how did he pass? He was scared to death. What, was it something trying to attack him? No, he was just so scared of being out on his own that he just curled up and passed. Like, he, he would, he, 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 I, I would have too uh, uh, at his age, you know? This is a kid still needs light in the hallway. 
you know, at night to fall asleep because he's scared of monsters. I have to practically beat him to go mow the lawn. And then I worry about him cutting his hand off while he does because he's a fucking space cadet, constantly living in some daydream about football cards, PS4, or playing with his dog. But Eric uh, slash Harry had already been employed full-time for a couple years. By the time he's 12, takes off on his own. Oh, my God. And again, and again there's, you know, the, the one thing I, I learned about this episode more than any other one I did is... Uh, a, very hard to nail down stats in this guy, but, but B, a uh, lot of people that believe one way, a lot of people that believe the other, so I'd have to go to like, you know, four or five, six different websites to kind of try and verify what most likely happened, you know, try and try and pull from biographers and more legitimate sources, but even, you know, like among historians, a lot of debate about what went on, and especially this time of his life. Some people say he ran away, some people say he went to go work to support the family, um, some accounts say he was gone for one year. Some accounts say he was gone for two years. And, and again, Harry himself uh, was very reluctant to talk about this period of life. He was kind of ashamed of the hardships he went through. But what we do know uh, is around 1887, uh, Eric, a.k.a. Harry, he's 13, and his family gets a huge break. It, kind of like a fairy tale comes true. They receive some financial assistance from a rich uncle. Like Who, doesn't, who hadn't had that dream at one point? Just wishing he had some rich uncle who could just like you know provide for you. Uh, and his uncle uh, had just begun to make a killing in the yeast business. Yeah, making that yeast money, making that yeast cash. Not kidding. His mom's brother-in-law, Simon Newman, owned a yeast company in Brooklyn and made a little scratch. By 1888, he'd hooked up with some whiskey makers, started making that kind of yeast money young yeast makers only dream about. Took everything I had, not to say he was making yeast dough. Every time I was talking the last 30 seconds, I wanted to be like, making that yeast dough, making that yeast dough rise. A lot of yeast puns. How often do you get to make yeast puns? Anyway, sorry, I said to vomit that out there. By the 1890, Simon Newman's Atlantic Yeast and Old Colony Gin were the only serious rivals to uh, one of America's great business successes, the Fleischmann Brothers. I don't know a lot about yeast, but even I know about Fleischmann yeast, right? Those little square packets, I think they come in threes at the grocery store. Not that I have a lot of yeast experience. Well, apparently Uncle Yeast uh, helps Harry's family relocate to New York City, where they then get jobs, and Harry joins the team. He, his dad works at a sewing bench, and, his, and Harry works as a tie cutter. Very old-timey sounding jobs, right? They just feel right. What, what, what do you do there, young sir? Well, I'm, I'm currently gainfully employed as a tie cutter. Oh, good for you, young man. You, you continue with that industrial spirit, and you have a fine life ahead of you. Right? just feels right. Harry also finds time to kick a little more ass in athletics over in New York, becoming a member of the Pastime Athletics Club, competing in winning some foot races, boxing matches again, bike races, swim races, even tried out for the Olympic team. God damn, man, dude was a dude was a champion triathlete before there were triathlons, which uh, began in their current form in 1974, by the way, in San Diego. Uh, reading stuff like this always makes me feel a little bad about myself, you know, because I love to make excuses for my failures and shortcomings. Even even the podcast, I'll be like, you know, in hindsight, I'll, I'll listen to a few of them. I'm like, yeah, well, I could have made a better one, but, you know, if I didn't have a, to take the dog out or pick up the kids from school, you know, I, I could have been a really good basketball player growing up if only my parents would have pushed me harder. I could have gotten better grades on, on tests, but I had to work to, you know, I had work to do at, at my library work-study job. I could have, could have had a sitcom if only I would have went to L.A. earlier, but I had to stay in Spokane because I, I was married and my wife didn't want blah, 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 blah. It's all excuses. I could do all kinds of stuff, but instead I spent hours, you know, getting really good at Street Fighter 2 on Super Nintendo or watching four movies in a row on a Saturday afternoon instead of, instead of practicing something useful. Like, like, I'd be fluent in several languages if I could go back in time to when I was about 11 or 12 
and just make it uh, a strong decision to put half the time I would spend jerking off over the next few decades into learning languages. I probably know like 12 languages. Harry, though, man, he put his time to good use, right? He attacked life like the young boxer he was, refused to let hardships beat him. Well, the rest of us were, or the <laughs> rest of us, like a Sunday I'm back in time. While his peers were beaten off, he was beating life. What if he would have said that during his speech? That would have been so fucking great back in like 1910. As a young child, while many of my peers beat their wieners, I beat life. People are like kind of inspired, but kind of like, really? You couldn't have come up with a better analogy than that? Um, you can see you can see the intes- intensity he kind of directed his life. Just in any picture taken of the dude. Like, like I'll have a bunch of pictures up of this episode, like uh, like I've been doing with a lot, with a lot of them at timesickpodcast.com in the episode description. And just look at look at his eyes. So focused, such a powerful gaze. Just a, you know, if you try to bullshit me, I will know immediately kind of gaze. And so while Milwaukee was where a young Eric slash Harry began to work as a street performer, New York City was uh, the city that introduced him to magic. It's believed that during this period he had his first real encounter with um, magic literature when he read the autobiography of Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. What a name. A French magician considered to be the first pioneer of modern-day magic. And as a sign of respect to Robert Houdin, Harry adds an I to Houdin and gives that as his last name. Starts to teach himself card tricks, starts performing uh, with his work colleague, and fellow tie cutter Jacob Hyman as the brothers Houdini. Uh, Houdini's brother Theo, aka Dash, later replaces Hyman in the act, which you know it makes sense. You know it's hard to beat out Houdini's actual brother to be in the brothers Houdini. So that's how he got his last name of Houdini. And then the name Harry was an homage to another famous magician, the American magician Harry Keller, extremely popular when Harry was young. So now Eric Weitz has transformed into Harry Houdini. And while messing around is the uh, Houdini brothers, Harry starts messing around with handcuffs, learning some escape tricks as well, the kind of tricks that would make him extremely famous a little bit later. And then the uh, Houdini brothers, they get pretty good. They get pretty good pretty fast, performing at amusement parks, beer halls, you know, dime museums. I would mentioned that earlier, dime museum. That was a 19th century kind of kind of lowbrow entertainment center featuring shows that you know might include human oddities, technological marvels, magic, etc. Just, you know, whatever random weird kind of carnival type show. You know, a place where you could pay a dime to see something not as not as boring and hoity-toity as, as a play, basically. 1892, a little tragedy strikes the White's family on October 5th when Harry's father dies of cancer. And apparently on his deathbed in the hospital, Harry's dad asked Harry to take care of his mom. It was no secret that Harry adored his mother, and they were especially close. And Harry, as we'll see, uh, makes good on that request. Uh, very good, in fact. 1894 is a big year in Harry's life. The Houdini brothers perform on Coney Island, where young Harry meets... Wilhelmina Beatrice Rayner, who thankfully went by best, because Wilhelmina sounds like the daughter you only let out of the basement when you don't have company over. Just, Wilhelmina, what did I say about coming upstairs when we have company? Back, Wilhelmina, back, back to the basement. But I wanted a biscuit, father. I'm hungry, father. You'll get your biscuit when I bring it to you, Wilhelmina. How dare you? You get the idea. Well, Bess was uh, a young, beautiful showgirl in an act called The Floral Sisters, who caught married, uh... Uh, oh, and, and then they got married after dating for just three weeks on June 22nd, 1894. Harry's 20, Bess is 18, and they will stay married until death later does them apart. Uh, so things were great for the young couple. I mean, I mean, mostly. Apparently, Bess's uh, mother was not happy that her Catholic daughter uh, married a Jewish magician and actually didn't talk to the couple for several years. Uh, she was uh, legitimately concerned that Harry was the devil, apparently. He was a magician, so there was strike one, and he was Jewish. So uh, in the 1890s, there's the two other strikes. Oh, superstitious people. Always cracked me up. Think about how stupid this lady was. You know, in a common type of stupidity for that day. For years, she didn't talk to her own daughter. 
because her daughter didn't marry another Catholic as she had, as she had wanted. She was, <laughs> she was so worried that her daughter was shacking up with an evil entity from the underground lake of fire, for fuck's sake. What an insane waste of energy, right? Makes as much sense as losing sleep because you're, you're worried about your daughter dating a vampire or a werewolf. Nonsense. Okay, so later in 1894, 1894 uh, Bess replaces Harry's brother Dash in the family show now called uh, uh, The Houdinis. So it goes from the brothers Houdini to the Houdinis. And Bess will work as Harry's stage assistant and just kind of overall uh, helper and supporter for the rest of, her, uh, of his life. And, uh, and for the next five years, the couple who will never have kids, speculation is that Bess was not able to become pregnant due to some type of medical condition. Uh, they traveled around the country working work odd venues, dime museums, beer halls, etc. Occasionally tour with the Welsh Brothers Circus where they sang and danced and performed a trick called the Metamorphosis in which they switched places in a locked trunk. Harry's first big stage illusion. Well, during this time, uh, Hooney just kind of works on the fundamentals of his craft. He works on his voice and showmanship, always honing every angle of his career, leaving nothing to chance. Uh, and most important to his later career, he, he continues to work uh, on handcuff escapes, becoming quite the expert in that niche. And then in 1899, his hard work pays off. Harry gets his first big break, performing at a beer hall in St. Paul, Minnesota. Vaudeville theater owner, manager, and theatrical booking agent Martin Beck saw Houdini do his handcuff trick and was impressed enough to offer him a gig at a theater instead of a beer hall, which led to a lifetime of bigger and better gigs. Uh, Martin Beck, by the way, great agent name. Yeah. Hi, I'm, I'm Martin Beck. I book theaters across the country. That sounds a lot better than something like, Hi, I'm, I'm Clifford Jenkins. Big-time theater booker. Now, Clifford makes you a little skeptical. Anyways, uh, Beck telegraphed Houdini when he got to his next stop in Chicago. Uh, he said uh, in the telegraph, You can open Omaha March 26th, $60. We'll see act, probably make you proposition for all next season. Well, according to Houdini's wife, Bess, uh, this represented Houdini's big break in his professional career as a performing magician. As Houdini wrote at the bottom of the telegram, which he had carefully preserved and kept his entire life, this wire changed my whole life's journey. Beck also encouraged Harry to focus on escape acts, which led him to becoming the escape artist legend we know of today. So 1900, Europe and increasing fame. By 1900, Beck had connected Houdini to booking agent in Europe, uh, where he was uh, to a booking agent in Europe, where he was billed as the Handcuff King. And after escaping from some Scotland Yard's handcuffs in London and receiving huge publicity in the papers there for doing so, Harry lands a six-month run at the Alhambra Theater in Leicester Square, making 300 bucks a week, which today equates to over eight grand a week. That's over 200 grand for a six-month run. Not bad for a 26-year-old guy with a third-grade education. And after the uh, Alhambra run, word of the handcuff king grew, and he toured Europe extensively, setting box office records in places like Dresden and Berlin. Dude was killing it. Audiences packing theaters to see what new trick he was performing. The handcuff escapes, th those were his first big hits. Like early on, he'd escape because of a key somewhere in his clothing, you know, who didn't even invent a belt made out of flexible steel with special compartments that he used to store tools he would need to escape. And, but, uh, you know, other magicians were doing similar tricks, but where Houdini stood out from the pack was, uh, you know, with the ease and speed in which he escaped. He performed hundreds of successful handcuff escapes, often within mere seconds of having the handcuffs put on him. And then as he got better, he really separated himself from the rest of the magicians by allowing himself to be strip-searched. And then when no key could be found, in minimal clothing, still escape. Who knew where he hid those keys? There was no mention of anal cavity or behind his ball sack in any of the articles or excerpts I read. That's where he hid those keys. He, he never fessed up. Probably a good thing. The Handcuff King, way better nickname than behind the ball sack Harry. Or even worse, Harry Balsack. You know? Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have none other than the world's most famous escape artist. 
fresh from conquering the crowds of Europe, I present to you Harry Ballsack. Nah, I like it. It kind of looks funny to me, but probably wouldn't have done well then. But uh, he did hide them somewhere. The guy never claimed to use supernatural powers to escape. He, he took pride on being clever, focused, and just a fantastic showman. He was a master distractor, like all good magicians. Uh, Harry also debuted his straitjacket escape early in his newfound fame, having his hands restrained inside the jacket meant Houdini could not escape nearly as easily as he could from handcuffs. Instead, relied on his whole body to obtain slack and wiggle free. He would have first, uh, first focus on bringing his arms to the front of his body, sometimes needing to dislocate his shoulder in order to do so. How crazy is that? Man, pulling a fucking Mel Gibson and lethal weapon. From here, he used his teeth to loosen the, uh, the jacket straps. Houdini learned to uh, escape so skillfully, he began performing the act for audiences while hung upside down, bound at the ankles, eventually cutting his escape time from 30 minutes down to just three to uh, further increase publicity, he began to jump into rivers and stuff while, while handcuffed and chained in the cities he was going to do theater shows in. Allowing the suspense to build, Houdini would often remain underwater long after observers believed he could, he could no longer survive, only to rise up, waving the chains above his head. So 19, uh, 1904, Houdini's fame grew. He didn't forget his family. He, uh, he brought his brother Dash, known now as the magician and escape artist Hardeen, to Europe, bankrolled his brother's career. Uh, they kind of would play on that later and act like Hardeen was competing against his brother, but unbeknownst to, you know, the, the audience, uh, you know, they were <laughs> great friends, and Houdini was actually helping financially his brother whenever he needed it. He then returns to America, uh, do sold-out theaters. Then he buys his mom a house in 1984, and he's been taking great care of his mom, been paying for her life, uh, you know, ever since he started making any money as a magician. He buys her a house in the German section of Harlem so she can live around other people who didn't speak English. Buys one for like $25,000, which was big money at that time. How adorable is that? 1906, the dude was a master of publicity as well as escapes, and he started doing bigger and bolder tricks out in public to advertise his skills and shows, capturing the imagination of people around the world. Like on New Year's Day in 1906, the infamous Houdini broke out of what was said to be the strongest and toughest jail in Washington, D.C. The 10th Precinct boasted, quote, cells of the most modern and approved pattern. The doors of these cells are steel-barred and have the most intricate combination locks. I feel like everybody talked that way back then. While in town to perform at Chase's Theater, Houdini publicized his craving to show off his escape skills. Upon hearing this, Police Chief Major Richard Sylvester excitedly invited Houdini to visit the 10th Precinct. The only demand from Houdini was one he requested every place he went that he was allowed to examine the cell and locks prior to being handcuffed. Sylvester agreed at first, but then seconds before locking up his new prisoner, he switched the locks with locks from a different cell. Oh, Sly Dog Sylvester. Sly Dog Sylvester versus Harry Balsack. What a matchup. Sounds like some bizarre world wrestling match. Well, Houdini was stripped of his clothes, which were locked in the cell next door, handcuffed by special secret service cuffs, placed in the cell number three, and locked behind five separate locks. Eighteen minutes later, Houdini presents himself amongst the guards and Major Sylvester, fully clothed and smirking. He then let the chief major know that he had escaped by growing one of his infamous hard-as-tempered-steel erections and using his iron cock to smash the locks and change it to pieces. Okay, maybe that was not in the papers. He didn't do that, but maybe, but he could have. He could have, because it never said, okay? His secrets were never revealed on some of these things, all right, you guys? Okay, 1908, two years later, Houdini debuts his famous milk can escape at the Columbia Theater in St. Louis on January 27th. January 27th, 1908. It's advertised with dramatic posters that proclaim, failure means a drowning death. The milk can stunt was a big turning point for Houdini as a performer. With the milk can, uh, Houdini brought his death-defying feats, which had previously been confined to outdoor events like bridge jumps, into the theater now. 
in some cities. Uh, Houdini accepted challenges to escape from the can after it had been filled with beer, for example, by a local brewery. During one of those challenges, he had his only mishap when he passed out because of the fumes. Beer fumes, man. The one thing that could stop the handcuffed king. 1908, he also introduced the weird, weird weed chain tire grip escape on April 6th in New York City. Uh, check out this description from uh, of the event from a flyer advertising, which will, which will also be at timesuckpodcast.com. Although Houdini has earned universal fame as the handcuffed king, it may not be out of place to briefly mention that this mysterious man has, during his long career, baffled police authorities and jailers of the civilized world. He has been locked in Siberian prisons, in dungeons, in modern heavily locked and barred cells, strong boxes, and without the assistance of any description, has always escaped imprisonment. Believing... Uh... Believing that they had formulated a plan that would provide against any possibility of escape, the Weed Chain Tire Grip Company issued a challenge we print herewith. So it goes on to print the challenge letter. Dear sir, will you accept a challenge under the following conditions? We propose to amass you in a number of our Weed Chain Tire Grips. These chains have a series of loops on them, and we wish you to put your head through one, your arms and legs through others, and finally lock the different chains about your body. Locks to be furnished by us. We should also suggest that you permit us to further bind you in two steel-rimmed automobile wheels. The tires used to be covered with our chains. And it goes on a bit, you know, talking about how impossible it would be to escape from this. There's a few pictures of Houdini covered in all these tire chains, the kind you would use to put on, you know, kind of like tires in icy road conditions. And he's also chained to two actual tires. And then it talks about how the challenge was accepted. Describes the first escape attempt. The evening the performance took place found the theater packed to the doors with standing room and a premium. When Houdini came on the stage and was met by a committee representing the Weed Chain Tire Grip Company, God damn, it's a long name, who proceeded to enmesh him in six weed chains, which were wrapped about and over his head, arms, and body. The two heavy steel-rimmed automobile wheels were added. I love when they say automobile. His arms handcuffed on each side to the wheels and chains and a pair of leg irons placed around his ankles, all securely padlocked with 24 Yale and town locks furnished by the committee. The combined weight of chains, wheel, irons, and padlocks was over 400 pounds. It took Houdini from 11 o'clock to 11.30 to release himself. And when he finally escaped and appeared before the audience to answer their cheers, he could not speak or even publicly acknowledge the magnificent floor piece presented to him by his challengers. Ha! <laughs> what a showman this son of a bitch was, man. All choked up by the triumph of his victory. He, he just couldn't even talk, you guys. Oh, man. I love this guy. I watched uh, some videos with archival footage of him uh, and some of his escapes, and he, he he always made such a show out of it, man. Really dramatic, but like but like the perfect tone for those kind of escapes. He wasn't just some dude who was good at getting out of a tight spot. You know, the escape itself really isn't that interesting to watch sometimes, and it just happens kind of fast. You know, like it'll be like a dude wiggling around for a while until he pops out of a straitjacket or pops loose from handcuffs. You know, emerges from the river or tank of water. But it, it was really he was good about the, like the hype and the presentation and the buildup, man. He always played up the impossibility of the act. You know. How the people tying him up, they didn't want him to win. The tire chain people don't want to see their sweet tire chains put to shame, do they? No, how, can, how could he get out? It's impossible. He did a lot of death-defying stuff, too, a lot of speculation. Uh, he reached out to these companies, though, <laughs> about setting up the stunts, rather than them challenging him. Like, a lot of people speculate that. Like, that, you know, he wrote a lot of these things <laughs> instead of having them write it up, which I think is hilarious. Uh, really just an early example of cross-promotion in American business, you know? Everybody gets their name out. So anyway, a month after the tire chain escape, he jumps off Boston's Harvard Bridge into the Charles River, locked in handcuffs and shackles on April 30th, 1908. Apparently, they still have a plaque about this on that bridge today. Shit, man, I'd watch that. That's insane. He didn't, he didn't, uh, 
you know, he doesn't complete this, this trick in time, he, he drowns, right? What better way to promote an upcoming performance in Boston than to be locked up in chains, take a 30-foot plunge into the Charles River? Uh, he did this jump two weeks, you know, uh, before performing at Keith's Theater on Washington Street. And the man who made the impossible possible decided to take his talent of escaping from handcuffs and chains a step further by doing so underwater. Houdini stood at the edge of the Harvard Bridge, commonly referred to as the Mass Ave Bridge, shackled by a Boston patrolman. His hands were handcuffed behind his back, chained to a collar around his neck. According to a Boston Globe article chronicling the feat, a signal was tooted from a towboat, and Houdini went overboard into the chilly waters below. Quote, there is always the possibility that I will be unable to free myself, as no one can tell what will happen to a lock. That's what Houdini told the paper. However, I am a good swimmer, have confidence in myself, and I hope to perform this feat successfully. People spoke so much more uh, <laughs> precisely back then. The Globe estimated some 20,000 spectators gathered to see Houdini's leap, including the mayor of Boston and the mayor of Cambridge. Uh, they waited 40 seconds for the magician to resurface, which he did with shackles in his hands. What a badass, man. No wonder why we're still talking about him today. Honestly, the more I research this guy, the more my opinion changes about magicians. The really good ones are mesmerizing. Now, like the cheese dick guy with the corny jokes doing card tricks with a fucking roughly silk shirt and some white gloves, maybe even a top hat, not interested in that guy. I, I've worked with some comedy magicians years ago who actually did dress like that. Uh, not into it. Uh, and David Copperfield, as famous he's, as he is, he bugs me too, man. He looks too much like a magician. He looks like he was built rather than born. Like, not entirely human. Like, Copperfield looks like some kind of Westworld robot magician. You know, but Penn and Teller, David Blaine, love it, and even more into it now. Not that you, you know, incredibly successful bastards need my approval. And even some of the really, you know, good close-up magic card trick guys are good. You know, it messes with your mind. It, I will say I've had those, you know, uh, performed in front of me sometimes. It does mess with your mind when you, when you watch them as close as you can, looking for what they're doing to trick you, and you cannot for the life of you figure it out. It's like your mind can't process it. Your brain just shuts down in a sense. You know, that, in a way, you know, trick or not, is, you know, it's, it's truly magical. Okay, and so, so it went for the next few years of Houdini's life. More death-defined public escapes, thrown overboard from a boat in New York's East River in 1912, hands and feet manacled, put inside a wooden crate that's nailed shut and wrapped in ropes, waited to sink to the bottom of a river with 250 pounds of lead. He resurfaces 50 second, 57 seconds later. Crate's found intact. Manacle's still inside. Magic! Ta-da! Several times, uh, uh, I, I would watch the video of these performances, and like he'd escape from the a straight jacket while suspended upside down, uh, hanging from a hook on a crane. Several stories above the large crowd that had gathered in the street below to watch him. Like he's really kind of up in the ante, you know. He's doing more intense things. Uh, he'd get a ton of publicity from uh, from a stunt like that, and then he'd you know uh, sell a ton more theater tickets, and people would watch him get tied up, lowered into a vat of water, milk or beer or whatever, while manacled or put in a straight jacket, and he'd get out of that. And his main theatrical uh, version of this type of stunt was called the Chinese Water Torture Cell. In this escape, Houdini's feet were locked in stocks. He was lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. The mahogany and metal cell featured a glass front through which audiences could actually watch Houdini struggle underwater. The stocks were locked, or under milk, or whatever the fuck he was swirling in. The stocks were locked at the top of the cell, and a curtain concealed his escape. Uh, in the earliest version of this torture cell, uh, a metal cage was lowered into the cell, so, and Houdini was enclosed inside of that making it even more difficult, you know, because the cage prevented Houdini from turning around in there. The cage bars also offer protection should the, should the glass break. The original cell was built, built in England, and uh, where Houdini first performed the escape from an audience of one uh, as part of a one-act play he called Houdini Upside Down. And he would do that, uh, he would do it in front of one person so he could copyright the effect and have grounds to sue imitators later when they, when they, when they stole it, which he, which he did. Dude was a solid businessman, man. Uh, no one was going to take his stunts from him. And he did some illusions, like I had mentioned earlier. Uh, wasn't all escapes, you know. His most famous illusion was uh, vanishing an elephant, Jenny the Elephant, to be 
precise at New York's Hippodrome in 1914. All that, again, on a third-grade education. Fascinating dude. All right, well, on July 17, 1913, a little tragedy strikes in Houdini's fantasy of an adult life. His mom, who I've said he was extremely close to, Cecilia Steiner Weiss, suffers a massive stroke and dies instantly in New York while Houdini is touring in Denmark. He was so upset when he received the news that he fainted, had to be revived. This brave, strong man who constantly gave death the old middle finger was an emotional mess. He was inconsolable. Uh, when he regained consciousness, he was weeping, sobbing. Those who knew him said he was never the same man again ever in his life. Uh, he'd mourned for months. Uh, you know, he, Here's some excerpts uh, from letters he sent his brother Dash during that time, uh, the magician Hardeen. Dash, it's tough. I can't seem to get over it. Sometimes I feel all right, but when a calm moment arrives, I'm as bad as ever. And seven months uh, after her death, he wrote, I can write all right when I keep away from my heart the rendering subject. Uh, wait. I can write all right when I keep away from the heart rendering subject. So we'll try and avoid it if possible. But I have to write to my brother once in a while about her whom we miss and for her with whom I feel as if my heart of hearts went with her. Uh, whenever you put her there, he always put it in all caps. So really, really bummed, which, you know, it's uh, terrible. Uh, some historians speculate that it was his grief over his mother's death that led him to speaking out against mediums and clairvoyance, uh, you know, or, or, or at least that it, like, got him to seek them out. And then when he found them to be frauds, he became obsessed with exposing them. But, but actually, he was well aware of mediums and their fraudulent ways long before mom passed away. Uh, in the book Houdini and Conan Doyle, author Christopher Sanford says that Houdini attended a series of seances at, at the age of 11 in an attempt uh, to communicate with his recently deceased half-brother, Herman, uh, which actually wasn't that weird. It sounds weird if you were to do that now. This was very common at that time. Like spiritualists, you know, they were, they were big in the 19th century. Uh, later, when his father died, Houdini sold his watch to attend a professional psychic reunion with Rabbi Weiss. Uh, well, neither experience convinced him he was speaking to his brother or his father. Even at that young age, the boy who would become Houdini could sense fraud. Uh, certainly these experiences uh, I, I could be seen as some psychological ammunition for later hostility towards these mediums. Harry also had a personal involvement with spiritualism. He felt guilty that he had kind of helped uh, uh, do some of that himself when he was younger. He and his wife, Bess, dabbled in putting some uh, seance shows before his big break, and he wrote, uh, he wrote about that. Uh, later in life, he wrote, At the time, I appreciated the fact that I surprised my clients, but while aware of the fact I was deceiving them, I did not see or understand the seriousness of trifling with such sacred sentimenta sentimentality and the baneful result which inevitably followed. To me, it was a lark. I was a mystifier. And as such, my ambition was being gratified and my love for a mild sensation satisfied. After delving deep, I realized the seriousness of it all. As I advanced to riper years of experience, I was brought to a realization of the seriousness of trifling with the hallowed reverence of which the average human being bestows on the departed. And when I personally became afflicted with similar grief, I was chagrined that I should ever have been guilty of such frivolity and for the first time realized that it had bordered on crime. I guess that fucking guy had a better vocabulary with a third grade ed education than I would say 99% of college educated people today. My God. But anyway, Harry's mother, uh, his mother's death does factor in his, into his determination to expose mediums as frauds. It just doesn't happen until much later in, in, in June 17th, 1922, when his mom is supposedly channeled by Lady Doyle, wife of his friend and author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. More on that in a bit. Eventually, Houdini does come out of formal grieving. He continues to successfully tour, new escapes, new shows. You know, he begins to collect an immense library of books to educate himself uh, about as fully as possible as he could about the world around him. You know, becomes friends with leading intellectuals, artists of the day. The guy had very little formal education, but was a voracious reader, constantly continued to educate himself. 
And with the rise of spiritualism, uh, he read a lot about that subject. Also started to push himself into more dangerous stunts after his mom's death. He was a little more reckless, like his buried alive stunt. The first buried alive stunt he tried was near Santa Ana, California in 1915, and it almost killed him. Houdini was buried without a casket in a pit of earth six feet deep. He became exhausted and panicked while trying to dig his way back to the surface, called for help. When his hand finally broke the surface, he fell unconscious and had to be pulled from the grave by his assistants. Houdini wrote in his diary that the escape was very dangerous and the weight of the earth is killing. Fuck that. Uh, that's the one I'd have the least interest in trying, man. Drowning sounds like a terrible way to go. But I think I'd rather drown than be buried alive. Stuck under, what, just, you know, hundreds of pounds of dirt alone and thinking for hours about how you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. No thanks. If anyone listening is a maniac who wants to kidnap and kill me, uh, please, if you do catch me, do, uh, do not bury me alive. Please do me that one favor. Well, despite the danger of being buried alive, Houdini stuck with that trick until his death uh, on October 31, 1926. Somehow fitting he died on Halloween, right? Houdini's final buried alive stunt was an elaborate stage escape that was to be featured in his full evening show. Uh, Houdini would escape after being strapped in a straitjacket, sealed in a casket, and then buried in a large tank filled with sand. Sounds terrible. While posters advertising the escape exist, uh, playing off the Bay Challenge by boasting Egyptian fakers outdone, it is unclear whether Houdini ever performed Buried Alive on stage. In all likelihood, he probably, you know, pulled it off privately to copyright it as he would do. Um, and then the stunt was to be featured uh, in the 1927 season, but, you know, he dies in 1926. The bronze casket Houdini created for the Buried Alive stunt was used to transport his body from Detroit to New York following his death on Halloween. So he's practicing it. And then there's his death. So let's get into that. Uh, despite all his death-defying stunts, Houdini didn't die attempting, uh, attempting one, like some people believe. He did have an interesting, unusual death, though. Uh, when Houdini was getting ready for a show on October 22, 1926, in Montreal, Canada, a couple students from local McGill University visited him in his dressing room. Uh, apparently, Houdini had delivered a lecture at McGill University uh, a little bit, a few days prior, expo about exposing fraudulent spirit spiritualists and mediums and afterwards, he stayed around to chat with various faculty members and some students. And one of these students was named Samuel J. J. Smilovich. And that uh, student approached Houdini with a sketch he'd made of the escape artist. Houdini was impressed enough with the drawing uh, to invite the young man to come backstage after one of his shows and just to do a full portrait. Well, uh, Smilovich uh, took uh, Houdini up on the offer, bringing along his friend Jack Price to meet the magician in the lobby of the Princess Theater the morning of Friday, 20, uh, October 22nd. They followed Houdini to his dressing room, and a few minutes later, another McGill student named Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead knocks on the door. Uh, what then occurred was later described by Jack Price and included in a book by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Houdini was facing us and lying down on a couch at the time reading some mail, his right side nearest us. The first-year student, Whitehead, engaged Houdini more or less continually whilst my friend Mr. Smilovich continued to sketch Houdini. The student was the first to raise the question of Houdini's strength. My friend and I were not so much interested in his strength as we were in his mental acuteness, his skills, his beliefs, and his personal experiences. Houdini stated that he had extraordinary muscles in his forearms, in his shoulders, and in his back, and he asked all of us present to feel them, which we did. <laughs> man, man, this guy was super talented, but also super into himself. I mean, I get being proud of your body, but I've never understood the whole, like, hey, man, hey, bro, come feel my muscles. I didn't, I didn't realize Harry could be so bro-y, man. Hey, bro, hey, bro. Come check out this bicep. It's pretty nice, huh? So big and so tight. Now, now feel my traps. Put your, yeah, put your hands on my traps. Huh? How about those quadriceps? You rub my quadriceps, man. Rub them. Feel them. Feel the separation on those heads, man. All four of them. I'm 50 years old, bro. I'm 50 years old. I'm fucking yoked. I don't know. Comes across a little homoerotic. 
little bit uh, midlife crisis to me. Anyway, maybe it was normal at the time. Back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's written account. The first year, McGill's student asked Houdini whether it was true that punches in the stomach did not hurt him. Houdini remarked rather unenthusiastically that his stomach could resist much, though he did not speak of it in superlative terms. Thereupon, he gave Houdini some very hammer-like blows below the belt, first securing Houdini's permission to strike him. Houdini was reclining at the time with his right side nearest Whitehead, and the said student was more or less bending over him. These blows fell on the part of the stomach to the right of the navel, and was struck on the side nearest to us, which was in fact Houdini's right side. I do not remember exactly how many blows were struck. I am certain, however, of at least four very hard and severe body blows, because at the end of the second or third blow, I verbally protested against this sudden onslaught on the part of this first-year student, using the words, quote, Hey there, you must be crazy. What are you doing? Or words to that effect. But Whitehead continued striking Houdini with all his strength. Houdini stopped suddenly in the midst of a punch with a gesture that he'd had enough. At the time Whitehead was striking Houdini, the latter looked as though he was in extreme pain and winced as each blow was struck. Houdini immediately after stated that he had no opportunity to prepare himself against the blows, as he did not think that Whitehead would strike him as suddenly as he did and with such force, but that he would have been in better position to prepare for the blows if he had risen from his couch for this purpose, but the injury to his foot prevented him from getting about rapidly. Now, some people disputed Heather would ever, uh, Harry would ever ask somebody to punch him when this story got out, but friends of Houdini had heard him brag about his fitness. You see pictures of this dude at 50. He was yoked, uh, very muscular physique for a man in, in the 1920s. His escape attempts relied partly on that physical fitness. Remember, like for the straight jacket, he had to pump himself up to then have his muscles go slack to have room to escape, some wiggle room. Uh, an artist friend of Harry's, Al Hirschfeld, who had a great career doing caricatures and paintings of celebrities that graced the covers of the New Yorker, New York Times, Life Magazine, etc., did say that Harry would sometimes ask him to hit him in the stomach. Uh, uh, he would say, Al would say, he could, he could swell his stomach and shrink it and withstand blows. He would say to me, hit me, hit me as hard as you can. And I'd say, well, I don't want to. And he'd say, no, do it. And I would hit him with, I would hurt my hand. I mean, before I'd hurt him. Mm-hmm. So he's really into fucking showing off his muscles. Uh, so some historians, again, say he, he challenged audience members at his shows to punch him in the stomach to prove that he would stand any blow. Some say he didn't do this. I'm going to go with sometimes he did. I think that was part of his thing. Even my daughter, Monroe, who bought me some Houdini, her, I mean, I'm sorry, who I'd bought in some, <laughs> my daughter's buying me Houdini stuff, uh, who I'd bought some kind of Houdini magic kit, uh, she knew about his stomach. She literally said when I told her I was researching Houdini, uh, he was a guy who could take a punch to the stomach, right? So I, I think, you know, might not have been his, his, his you know, part of the posters, but occasionally he would uh, encourage people to do this. And I only bring, make a big point of that because there was all this speculation after he died that uh, he was poisoned by spiritualists, you know, or that, or that this guy was just some maniac to bring this up. And he was like some assassin hired by spiritualists. But no, I just, he was just a fucking nut who had heard this about Harry. And what a dick, you know, because like apparently, you know, Harry told this kid that he could indeed withstand the blow. But then before Harry could like fucking stand up and brace himself, the shithead hits him four times. Sounds like, you know, just above his junk, you know, lower stomach. Now, look, like, I don't know a lot about fighting, but I've taken some martial arts classes off and on over the course of my life, and I've been, even, uh, I've been used as a prop by instructors to demonstrate how to absorb a punch or a kick, and I've been kicked in the stomach by a grown man hard enough to just kind of send me flying back four or five feet across the room with no pad, just straight kick to the stomach. And I took it, and I was fine because I was ready for it. I braced for it. I exhaled, let the, let the uh, blow push my body instead of resisting it. You know, I went with the direction of the blow. Wasn't that big of a deal. But I've also had my 11-year-old son, uh, when I wasn't ready for it, fucking hit me in the stomach on the couch, and not fun. Way more painful and <laughs> very upsetting. Was not happy with him when he did that. Fucking hurts. Huge difference. Preparation is everything. Um, I will say there was some part of the blame, though, on Harry, though, too. He seemed a little too eager to impress these kids, you know? I don't know. 
Also, uh, Jocelyn Whitehead seems like a huge douche. Really just, uh, maybe, maybe he was douchey because his name was Jocelyn. Is that a fucking girl's name? I don't know. Well, anyway, Houdini apparently uh, performs through a lot of pain that night in Montreal. And the next several nights, he's having trouble sleeping. His stomach hurts so much. And we find out later his stomach hurt because, unbeknownst to him, his appendix had ruptured. When he finally sees a doctor in Detroit, a couple days later, uh, he's found to have a fever of 102 degrees and acute appendicitis. He was advised to go to the hospital for immediate surgery, but he decides to complete his show as planned. By the time he arrives on stage, his fever is 104. He's tired and in pain. His assistants often had to step in and offer help. Audience members reported that Harry missed his cues, seemed in a hurry. By the middle of the third act, Houdini asked his assistant to lower the curtain. He could not go on. Curtain closes. Harry collapses and uh, had to be carried to the dressing room. He continues to refuse medical care until the next morning when Bess insists he go to the hospital. He finally relents, has his appendix removed, but it's too fucking late. It had already ruptured. Doctors didn't have any hope for survival. On October 31st, 1926, uh, surrounded by his wife and brother, Harry Houdini dies of the infection caused by appendicitis. Now, Houdini's funeral was held on November 4th, 1926 in New York with more than 2,000 mourners in attendance. He's buried in Queens, in New York at the uh, Machpelah, I don't know, M-A-C-H-P-E-L-A-H cemetery with the crest of the Society of American Magicians inscribed on his grave. In fact, the society continues to hold its broken wand ceremony every November at Houdini's graveside. Bess Houdini dies in 1943, not allowed to be buried alongside her husband, as she had requested because she was not of Jewish descent. Some good old silly religious nonsense, all right? Oh, man, can't let, can't let Christina be buried uh, there. No, she, no, it's only for Jewish dead. God doesn't want that. Look, look, you guys, God is super interested in where dead humans are buried. He's very, it's very important to him. It's very, very important. He gets fucking pissed if you don't follow his death rites. You would think some omnip- omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, miraculous creator of the universe would be above such petty squabbles, but oh, mm-mm. separate cemeteries, you guys. It's really important to me. Well, there was a lot of speculation about Harry's death. Like I said, a lot of people believed he was poisoned by spiritualists. He was furious over exposing him. No legitimate historians believe that. Other people believe Whitehead's punches, you know, killed him. But that doesn't seem true either, not directly at least. It's highly unlikely, medically speaking, from everything I've looked into, that Whitehead's punch could have caused Houdini's appendix to burst. What's much more likely is the appendix was already inflamed, possibly already bursting, and that then Houdini falsely attributed his stomach pain over the next few days to a a bad couple of punches as opposed to appendicitis. So maybe if he hadn't been punched, he'd have gotten to the hospital sooner and gotten checked out. The only thing that's certain is that Whitehead was a total and complete douchebag of a human being who then uh, was apparently racked with guilt over the event. White House became a recluse and a hoarder, dropping out of school after the event, eventually dying of malnutrition less than 30 years later in 1944, which seems like a fucking horrible way to go. Malnutrition might be even worse than being buried alive. All right. So let's, let's, let's march on out of this timeline and take a much closer look at all the spiritualist tomfoolery that Houdini became wrapped up in. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, so let's really dig into this Houdini versus spiritualist now that we know a lot about Houdini. Uh, let's find out when he got serious about it. The, the, the real genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism or spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes, amongst other things. After World War I, spiritualism was suddenly back in vogue, and Doyle, who had lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of, quote, the movement. Houdini had a lifetime experience with tricks of the trade, so he and Doyle had a topic to discuss when they met in 1920. Now, this was thrilling for Houdini. He always craved attention as a scholar and an intellectual. 
Uh, side note on spiritualism, uh, spiritualism is defined as a belief that the spirits of the dead have both the ability and the inclination to communicate with the living. Now, there's more to it than that, but for the purposes of today, that, that's all we need to know. All right, uh, the communication with the dead is possible. Spiritualism itself could easily be a full episode. Okay, so the decade of the 1920s, let's get into why spiritualism was so hot, like, like Hansel and Zoolander kind of hot. Uh, the decade of the 1920s began immediately after the greatest trauma the Western world had ever known, uh, the First World War. Between 17 and 20 million people were killed in this horrible conflict, and the turmoil of that war swept away the old Victorian quaint way of life. It's hard for us to imagine the sense of shock and horror that set in after the guns fell silent on November 11th, 1918. Throughout the countries heavily involved in the war, especially Great Britain, Germany, France, Russia... And to an extent, the U.S., the prevailing com commonality of human experience was that of grief. In English-speaking countries, one of the ways this grief found expression was through the spiritualism movement. It was already around for decades before the war, but now it seemed more like a necessity than a novelty. All these grieving relatives needed closure. They needed to talk to the loved ones they'd lost. And while I'm sure some mediums had the best intentions, I'm sure a lot of them were fucking scumbags who saw a lot of dollar signs and all that grief. Uh, a medium, by the way, is just a person claiming to be able to contact the spirits of the dead and to communicate between the dead and the living. So, Harry Houdini goes to visit his friend and author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the former doctor who created Sherlock Holmes and also wrote The Lost World, the inspiration for the Jurassic Park movie franchise. It's in this company of uh, Doyle uh, that, that a major link between Cecilia Weiss, his mother, and spiritualism occurs. On June 17, 1922, Lady Doyle, Sir Arthur's wife, the former Jean Leckie, gives Houdini a seance in which he, uh, she channels his mother uh, via automatic writing. Now, automatic writing is writing said to be produced by a spiritual, occult, or subconscious agency rather than by the conscious intention of the writer. Now, it, it basically is that shit they do in horror movies when whoever is doing the writing suddenly acts like they've just had a seizure and their eyes turn white and the spirit uses them to communicate with the living, right? Because that makes sense, you know? That makes sense. You know, the dead just couldn't pick up a piece of chalk, write on the chalkboard. Nah, they got to make someone have a seizure. Gotta make them do it. Well, well into her automatic writing, Lady Doyle makes embarrassing mistakes like writing in English instead of German, uh, you know, because German was what Harry's mother spoke, and making the sign of the cross even though his mom was Jewish. So maybe Lady Doyle thought Harry's mom converted in the afterlife. Well, Houdini doesn't say anything at the time. You know, Sir Doyle was a, was a guy he wanted to be really good friends with, and he's polite, and he keeps his thoughts to himself. But then uh, Sir Arthur takes this as a sign that Houdini was swayed to his side of the argument and that spirits were real and says so publicly. And this puts Harry in an awkward situation, and, which I totally get. Like, we've all been with someone who says some crazy shit, and, and you don't immediately call him out on it because, you know, you don't want to start an argument. You know, at the end of the day, what do you care if they believe some horse shit? But then if they start telling everyone else that you believe it too, well, now you have to address it, right? Now they put you in a bad spot. It's, it's like I co-hosted a show once with a lady who told me she believed in all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, some of you listeners have already heard about her. Like, you know, she told me she believed in lizard Illuminati. And when she would tell me stuff like that, in my head, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? How could you be that stupid? Like, how do you honestly believe in that nonsense? What is wrong with you? But I didn't say that. I just kind of smiled and was like, oh, oh really? Oh, oh, wow. Oh, that's intense. You know, because I, I had to keep working with her. I, wanted, I just wanted us to get along. You know, and it's hard to get along with someone after you've just taken a dump on their beliefs and made it clear that you think they're a moron. But... If she would have started telling everyone else that I also believe in Lizard Illuminati, well, now I gotta fucking say something. Now it has to get awkward because you've you've taken it too far, right? I'd rather have one person hate me than everyone else think I'm out of my goddamn mind. So this is the situation Doyle puts Houdini in. And while Houdini doesn't uh, didn't work with Doyle, uh, he did again really value their friendship. Um, 
But now he has to speak out on the topic, and what he has to say is not complimentary about spiritualism. Doyle responds defensively, and suddenly Houdini is in a public debate with one of the great intellectuals of the age and somebody he really wanted to be buddies with. This is what drives him to then go after other mediums. He's going to win this fight at all costs. He's going to prove that he's right, that his side of the argument is right, not Doyle. He's a super competitive dude. He also discovers that it makes fantastic theater. You know, 10 years after the mother, uh, death of his mother, Cecilia Weiss, Houdini becomes America's foremost debunker of fraudulent mediums. How did he expose him? All right, how did he get these shysters? First, he'd disguise himself and attend one of their shows. And once he'd figured out what trick they were doing, uh, he'd often come back to the show with some journalists and some scientists so that, you know, they'd be torn apart in the papers, academic magazines, and have their career destroyed. Dude, do not fuck around. Let's look at the case, uh, his most famous uh, case of going after a medium. It's Houdini versus Mina Crandon, who was probably the most popular spiritualist he debunked, uh, to, let's just to show exactly how he kind of went after these people. July 23rd, 1924, Harry Dooney, <laughs> Harry Dooney, <laughs> okay, really combine those names. Harry Houdini trudged up the fourth floor seance room, uh, or up the fourth floor, excuse me, to the seance room at 10 Lime Street in Boston to attend a seance held by renowned medium Mina Crandon. With them were O.D. Munn, editor of Scientific American, and an esteemed panel of scientists. They'd come to witness the psychic feats of the nation's most credible spirit medium, a pretty 36-year-old flapper with blue eyes and a bob. Followers called her Marjorie. Detractors knew her as the Blonde Witch of Lime Street, which I heard a movie got greenlit uh, about her of the same title. We'll see what title it ends up with or if it even comes out. Uh, Marjorie was renowned for conjuring the voice of her dead brother, Walter, whose spirit rapped out messages, tipped tables, even sounded trumpets. Even by ghost standards, Walter was unfriendly, answering questions and quoting scripture in a gruff, disembodied voice. Marjorie, by contrast, was charming and attractive, at least when she wasn't showing off her, her most convincing psychic talent, exuding a slithery, viscous substance called ectoplasm from her orifices. The otherworldly substance flowed from her nose and ears, but mostly it emerged from beneath a sheer kimono like a string of entrails, an ectomorphic hand that Walter used to carry out his commands. Can you imagine seeing that shit in the 1920s before Hollywood special effects? Again, it's straight out of a horror movie. Between last week's Kirk's Bride Asylums and this week's Spiritualist and Ectoplasm, I feel like I'm uncovering the origins of at least 20 to 30% of every horror film ever made. Well, Harry, not fooled. Uh, unfortunately, his old friend, Sir Doyle, is. Doyle recommends Marjorie to the editors of Scientific American, who are offering a $2,500 prize to the first medium who could verifiably demonstrate to its six-man investigative committee a visual psychic manifestation. Now, this was no fly-by-night group of spook hunters. This is uh, Scientific American's J. Malcolm Byrd chaired the committee, which included psychologist William McDougall of Harvard, Harvard, former MIT physicist Daniel Comstock, two members of the Society of Phys uh, Psychical Research, Hereward Carrington and Walter Prince. Uh, Byrd and Carrington had already examined Marjorie more than 20 times, and they were ready to hand over the money. New York Times reported uh, the development with a straight face, Quote, Marjorie passes all psychic tests. Scientists find no trickery in scores of seances with Boston Medium. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, reading that as a headline? Be like, oh, shit. Just some random person. Like, oh, my God. It's, it's real. They can do it. Houdini, uh, not fooled still. Again, he, he, he was the guy who suggested creating this panel in the first goddamn place after the Scientific American approached him to investigate spiritualism, not about to give her his stamp of approval. Uh, quick note here, how fucking dedicated was this guy to debunking these people? I, he didn't just watch them, figure out they were full of shit, and then tell all his fans. He put together an anti-paranormal A-team, constantly impressed by how thorough this guy was in life. It's like he would, you know, preview his tricks for a very small private hand-picked audience so he could witness, you know, get an eyewitness account for the exact date they saw him first do it, and then if another magician tried to do the trick later, he'd sue him and get that witness to testify. 
you know, so they could stop performing the trick. I'm telling you, it's, it's so intense. I had a comic once steal a joke of mine, called him out and told him to stop doing it. Right? And they agreed. Then I heard they were doing it again, and I just, I haven't done anything. You know what? Because I don't want to spend that energy. Take him to court over uh, whatever. I'll write more jokes. Harry, though, he, he would do that. Dude is inspiring, man. Find out what you love and pursue it with the energy of 10 men. Anyway, when Houdini learns this committee was prepared to endorse Marjorie, he's outraged, man. This is, this is the committee that, you know, he, he put together to defrock these people. Now they're going to hand over the money to somebody, some charlatan, and, and have already exposed, he's, he's already exposed the tricks of other celebrity mediums. Houdini was sure the committee was about to be duped once more. He cancels his own shows and heads to Boston. Boston. Again, imagine that, man. He's got theater shows, sold out theater shows lined up. He's like, nope, fuck it. I got, this is more important. I got to get Marjorie. So the show begins in Boston, and Marjorie greets Harry and his panel of scientists and then takes her seat with a three-sided Chinese screen, the lights dimmed. Because, you know, you need a Chinese screen to dim light to contact the dead. Everybody knows that. <laughs> you, you can't just sit in a yard on a sunlit afternoon and talk to the dead. Everybody knows the dead hate picnics. No, the dead like the dark and Chinese screens. Because even though they're dead and somehow powerful enough to talk with living, they're also very eccentric in, in particular. So soon enough, an, an eerie whistling fills the room, because that's another thing the dead love, whistling. On cue, the spirit of Walter uh, whispered his arrival, and even touching Houdini on the side of his right leg. After a break, he ordered an electric bell enclosed in a wooden box, brought to Houdini's feet, then Walter levitated a megaphone and boomed, Have Houdini tell me where to throw it? Toward me, Houdini said, and the megaphone flew through the air and crashed in front of him. And that was just the beginning. Throughout the evening, Walter produced a sequence of metaphysical spectacles, ringing the bell box on command, tipping over the wooden screen. What a show this would be for everyone in the audience, man. The most famous magician slash escape artist and one of the most famous people uh, uh, in the world being antagonized by a spirit, a spirit brought into the room by America's hottest medium. It's like if John Edwards from Crossing Over uh, would have taken on Chris Angel back in 2002 when people still, still gave a shit about those guys. Well, Houdini, was, he wasn't freaked out. He didn't believe in Walter. The man had done his homework. He knew that Dr. Leroy Crandon, Marjorie's husband, always sat on her right. Houdini also guessed correctly that he would be seated at her left in the circle with hand joins, uh, that Houdini would be seated at her left, uh, feet and legs touching. In preparation for the evening, Houdini wore a tight bandage under his right knee all day. It was so painful it made his skin tender to even the slightest touch. The heightened sensitivity paid off. He could feel Marjorie twist and flex in the dark as she moved her left ankle slightly to get the bell box under the table. Later, he felt her shift again to tip the Chinese screen with her foot. The flying megaphone stumped Houdini for a few hours, but he eventually figured out that Marjorie had placed it on her head, dunce cap style, with a momentarily free hand. She then jerked her head in the direction to send it crashing to the floor. Jesus! Think if this guy was a detective or some trial lawyer. Man, how good he could have been at that. You did not get, get, sh get shit past this guy. He wore a tight bandage on his knee all day to increase his skin sensitivity to help him detect her movements. That is insane. Again, third grade education. Man, talk about a self-made man, how far he went. What a great example of someone who chose to educate themselves when formal education wasn't an option, man. You know his lack of formal education gave him a huge chip on his shoulder, too. Maybe dropping out was the best thing that ever happened to him. So I've got her, he says, when the evening's over. All fraud, every bit of it, one more sitting, I'll be ready to expose everything. So there's a second seance at a Boston hotel. This one features a levitating table. Houdini reaches out in the dark, finds Marjorie's head lifting the table from beneath. He again felt her legs move as she reached to ring the bell box. The slickest ruse I ever detected, ever detected, Houdini said later. 
But when he announced his findings to the committee, he was asked to hold off a public denunciation. The committee was conflicted. When it refused to award the prize after several additional seances, the spiritualist became enraged, as did the spirit. Houdini, you goddamn son of a bitch, Walter roared at a seance. I put a curse on you that will now follow you every day for the rest of your short life. Bird and Carrington, still firmly under Marjorie's seductive spell, continue to report that she has supernatural powers. In October, Scientific American publishes an article describing the committee as hopelessly divided. Now, this fucking, this article really pisses Houdini off. In November, he publishes a pamphlet called Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by the Boston Media Marjorie, complete with drawings of how she produced her manifestations. He says, quote, She certainly was clever in her maneuvering to pull the wool over the eyes of the committee men. Uh, he says, uh, admitting the ingenuity of her de- techniques as he debunked their metaphysical nature. Uh, Houdini's pamphlet humiliated Marjorie, but he wasn't done yet. The scourge of spiritualism wanted to make her religion totally disappear. Before long, Houdini was re- reproducing Marjorie's so-called miracles to get laughter in performances across the nation. Jesus, man. He exposes her, then tours the country, adding to the mockery of her. Just, just mocks her methods on stage in front of packed houses laughing their ass off and how dumb she was. I mean, that's hardcore. And since she really was full of shit, uh, uh, she totally deserved it. So Marjorie does not get the Scientific American $2,500 prize, but Houdini's efforts don't slow her down. Uh, Dr. Crandon pushes his wife to continue holding seances, inviting all doubters to a room at 10 Lime Street. In 1925, the Harvard faculty formed an investigative team which skeptically witnesses uh, new manifestations of her talents, including a luminous jumping paper donut. One investigator uh, reported that he witnessed Marjorie reaching beneath her dress and pulling out strands of fake ectoplasm, which appeared to be butcher's offal, which is worse than it sounds. It's the internal organs and entrails of dead animals. Dead animals. <laughs> Who knew ectoplasm was just cow intestine? Uh, meanwhile, Marjorie's supporters go on the offensive, threatening to beat Houdini to a pulp, rooting for his demise. The escape artist continued to defy death in his stage show, locked, bolted, chained, and coffin, submerged in water, fuck, whatever. Each time he escapes, but Walter, Marjorie's angry spirit guide, knew better in August 1926. The month before he dies, the specter proclaims that the end was near. Quote, Houdini will be gone by Halloween, he says. Well, you know that Houdini did die on Halloween. Marjorie's supporters, no doubt, loved that, offered it as proof of her powers. You know, but you know, really, you make enough proclamations, you're bound to get a few of them right. It's like the Notre Dame method. You say enough crazy shit, some of it's going to end up sounding legit. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle then lives on for four more years, dies a believer. The author's spirit appeared to Marjorie uh, often as she soldiered on through the depths of the Great Depression and her own alcoholism, but Houdini's debunking had taken its toll. By the time she died at her house on Lime Street in 1941, her reputation and the spiritual movement were in tatters. One of Walter's fingerprints turned out to be her dentist's. One of her greatest supporters, Malcolm Byrd, finally admits to helping produce Walter's actions at seances. Silly assholes. But the fascination with Marjorie remains somehow, even on her deathbed. Uh, a psychic researcher shows up, hoping for a confession. At least a hint how she pulled off her most famous tricks. Why don't you guess? She laughed bitterly. It was clear that the blonde witch of Lime Street wasn't done toying with them yet. You'll all be guessing for the rest of your lives. <laughs> well, no, we're not. We're not guessing, Marjorie. You were a scam artist, simple as that. And Marjorie wasn't the only scam artist spiritualist he denounced. Uh, he continued to expose others. Uh, Joaquin Agamasia known as the Spaniard with X-ray eyes, claimed to be able to read handwriting or numbers on dice through closed metal boxes. But then in 1924, he was exposed by Houdini as a fraud. Houdini figured out that he, that he just peeked through a simple blindfold and was able to lift up the edge of the box so he could look inside. And he did it without others noticing. He was basically just a magician. 1926, shortly before he dies, uh, Harry Houdini hired H.P. Lovecraft and his friend C.M. Eddie Jr. to write an entire book about debunking spiritualists, which was to be called The Cancer of Superstition. 
H.P. Lovecraft would go on to gain posthumous fame as an early uh, writer of horror fiction, inspiring later authors such as Stephen King. Houdini had uh, asked uh, Lovecraft to write an article about astrology also, which he paid uh, 75 bucks for. That article did not survive. Lovecraft's detailed synopsis for cancer does survive, as do three chapters of the treatise written by Eddie. Uh, Houdini's death did derail the plans, though, as the widow did not wish to pursue the project, so they didn't totally finish it. Craziest of all about this is how he debunked spiritualists after he himself died. This is intense. He gave his wife, Bess, a code phrase that only she knew, Rosabelle Believe. Rosabelle being the name of their favorite song, she held a seance every year for a decade on the anniversary of his death. No medium was ever able to convey the phrase Rosabelle Believe back to her. One medium, Arthur Ford, claimed to have broken it, claimed to have said it, but Bess confessed later that she had nudged him in the right direction out of desperation to contact the man she loved and missed so much. She said years later, quote, There was a time when I wanted intensely to hear from Harry. I was ill, both physically and mentally, and such was my eagerness that spiritualists were able to prey upon my mind and make me believe that they had really heard from him. The last official seance was held on October 31st, 1936. The final seance was uncovered by a radio and broadcast all over the world. It was covered by them. Uh, the medium called out to Harry to make himself known. However, after an hour, nothing had occurred, and Mrs. Houdini decided to turn on the light, or turn off, turn off the light on her attempts to contact Harry. Man, poor Bess, man. Even though she knew more than almost anyone on earth how full of shit these fake, these fake spiritualists were, she was so desperate for contact that she allowed herself to be fooled. And that's how they get you. That's how they get you. These phonies like John Edwards, they prey on your desperation, man. They feed on your sadness. They're parasites. Now, just because I don't believe in mediums, I do want to make it clear that I, that I do believe in the possibility of the afterlife. I also believe in the possibility of nothing after this life. No one knows because no one has truly been dead and come back. Uh, I don't believe in near-death experiences, you know? Whatever those people see holds no more weight with me than, like, dream interpretation, you know? I had a dream last night that a giant beetle found its way into my bedroom. And then when I turned to tell my wife there was a giant beetle in the bedroom, it was a praying mantis, and it was even bigger. And then while I was wondering how this big praying mantis got into my room and what I should do about it, I woke up. And what does that mean? Fucking nothing. And neither does some white light at the end of a tunnel. Why, you know, why can't we just live on a form that doesn't connect with this world? Why can't there be some mystery that just isn't known to us? Also, I think being unsure about an afterlife makes me more protective of this life. Cherish every moment you can with your family. You know, because what if that's all there is? We all have responsibilities, but, but life isn't going to slow down for you to handle them. Be present for the people you love. You know, family board game night, watching a movie together on the couch, going camping. Those are my favorite moments. That's, that's my heaven. All right. As, as deeply as I've dug into Houdini, there was so much more to this uh, life, so much more to this episode. So, uh, you know, it could be a five-hour episode. I know it's the longest one so far already, but it's, it's almost over. But before we get to top five takeaways, let me throw some extra stuff at you that I left out, some weird facts. Weird facts. All right, first weird fact. Uh, Houdini was one of the world's first aviators. In 1909, Houdini became fascinated with aviation, purchased a 60-horsepower uh, French, it sounds very light, sounds like a lawnmower, uh, French uh, Voisin biplane for $5,000. Uh, he made his first flight at the Hooferen Parade Grounds at Wonsbeck near Hamburg, Germany. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because I'm not fucking German. Uh, on November 26, 1909, it's said Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly a plane. A few months later, seeing a chance to get in the record books, Houdini embarked on an Australian tour with Voisin in tow. Uh, V-O-I-S-I-N for, for plane enthusiasts. I may be butchering that. Houdini's first attempts to fly at Digger's Rest near Melbourne were hampered by weather conditions, mechanical problems, and one crash. Worse was the appearance of a rival aviator, Ralph C. Banks, who set up his new Wright Flyer on the same field. But on Friday, March 18, 1910, around 8 o'clock in the morning, 
the weather clears, and Houdini successfully takes flight. Houdini's historic first flight lasted only a minute, reached a height of no more than 25 feet, but it was witnessed by at least nine people, including Ralph Banks, who probably was not real happy about that. Uh, and they all signed a statement, even, even Ralph. Well, he's a good dude that way. That's one thing I liked about Ralph was, you know, being a good loser. Houdini told a reporter on the ride back to Melbourne uh, that he, uh, he didn't need to ride anymore. He could fly. He was officially recognized as the first person, person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League and presented with an impressive trophy. All right. Next thing was he was an actor and movie producer. Houdini was an early star of silent films, doing two for Paramount Pictures, The Grim Game in 1919, Terror Island in 1920. Now, The Grim Game was considered his best movie, widely considered to have been a lost film until a complete print of the film was acquired by Turner Classic Movies from Larry Weeks, a former juggler from Brooklyn who had obtained his copy from the Houdini estate, restored, uh, they then restored and aired it in 2015. How does a juggler have enough money to buy the last copy of Houdini's best film? Apparently... He was an incredibly ex- successful juggler. He was a vaudeville act, a uh, big headliner for, for a lot of years. Ah, man, that's still weird to me. I met a lot of jugglers. Uh, weird dudes. A lot. I haven't met a lot. Why did I say a lot? Yeah, just hang out with, hang out with jugglers every weekend. I've met a couple, like two. Anyway, after the two uh, movies uh, with Paramount, Harry became confident in his movie-making abilities, and he formed the Houdini Picture Corporation, where he wrote, produced, starred in movies such as The Man from Beyond and Haldane of the Secret Service. He also started up his own film laboratory business called the Film Development Corporation, using a new process for developing motion picture film. Uh, Houdini's brother, Hardeen, left his own career temporarily as a magician and escape artist to, to run the company. Well, neither Houdini's acting career nor FDC finds success, and he gives up on the movie business entirely in 1923, noting the profits are too meager. However, years later, Houdini did receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. How good is your life when you stop starring in movies because it doesn't make you as much money as being a magician? That's insane. Another weird fact, uh, Houdini's postage stamp has a hidden image. The U.S. Postal Service put a hidden image on their 2002 commemorative stamp uh, with a special viewing lens that can be attained from the post office. That's how you're able to, one can see this uh, image of Houdini wrapped in chains, the image representing the magician's art of deception. How cool is that? Not only do you get a commemorative stamp, you get one that requires a viewing lens. Uh, another thing I thought was uh, weird about uh, Houdini was his fascination with the macabre. Uh, Houdini was fascinated with anything that had to do with death, even known for performing stunts on death row. He collected detail information on murderers, purchased the first electric chair, also bought the writing desk of literary master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. Man, the more I learn about him, the more I feel like Houdini might have liked this podcast. I definitely would have liked uh, to meet him. It sounds cool as shit. Finally, the man had a strange sense of humor, which you know I love. He and Bess were never able to, uh, never able to have children, there's speculation that Harry uh, was sterile. Also speculation that Bess had a condition called primary uh, uh, amen- amenorrhea. This is a, a diagnosed if you turn 16 and haven't menstruated. It's usually caused by some problem in your endocrine system, which regulates your hormones. Uh, anyway, so they, so they couldn't have a real child. They had an imaginary one, a boy named after Harry's father, Mayer. And they wrote about young Mayer many times in letters to each other over the years. They would write about Mayer growing up and being so proud of him. Uh, they finally stopped writing about him once he became president of the United States. That's fucking great. They, through, through letter form, grew an imaginary child into the president. So aviator, movie star, producer, honored with the coolest stamp in the history of the post office, collector of the macabre, father of an imaginary, very successful son. Those are some weird facts. Weird facts. All right. So now I know everything I wanted to find out about Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini and his battle with spiritualists. Uh, I hope you do too. Let's quickly rehash the best parts 
with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Third grade education. Harry Houdini accomplished everything you heard about in this episode on a third grade education. The dude moved out on his own to find better work to support his family at the age of 12. Parents, feel free to point this out to your own kids when they bitch about their meager little chore list. Uh, He can fight better than you can. Number two. Number two is the man, as a young kid, outboxed other kids who went on to become boxing champions. And he wasn't a big dude. He was 5'5 as an adult. That alone would be most people's claim to fame. If I had beat up Floyd Mayweather Jr. as a kid, I wouldn't have this podcast now. I'd, I'd have a podcast called, hey, remember that time I beat up Floyd Mayweather Jr.? Each episode would essentially be the same episode. Just be like, yeah, yeah, beat him up. Here's how it happened. Number three. Mina Crandon, he was able to figure out that famous medium, Mina Crandon, was full of shit, even though she had Sir Arthur Conan Doyle convinced she was real, so he was a better detective than the guy who created Sherlock Holmes. That's incredible. Number four, he died from pride. Man, a few punches didn't kill Harry, and appendicitis only technically killed him. In reality, his pride did. No one thinks you're a badass for not going to the doctor when you feel like shit. If you feel like you're dying and you have 104 fever, uh, and a doctor has told you to have surgery, that you need it, Go ahead and postpone everything else in your life and get it figured out. Get the surgery, right? No, no one thinks that's awesome. Number five, he was a Jewish magician who convinced a Catholic girl to marry him in America in 1894, three weeks after meeting him. That might be his most impressive feat. People were way more racist in 1894 than they are today, and a lot of people still pretty racist today, so that's saying a lot. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, guys, I hope you had as much fun on this one as I did. I, uh, so much Houdini. So much. I know it was a big one. Hopefully it kept you entertained. And, and I tried to cut out so many things. I mean, the guy just had, like, yeah, like, no wonder they've tried to make so many movies about him. Hopefully they'll make a good one. Because it, it's, it's crazy. Like, they made a whole movies about aspects of his life, and now you get it. I mean, there was just so much, you know? So much. Uh, so thanks for listening. And before I sign off, a little little house cleaning. Uh, had some good corrections and some extra info about previous episodes coming from listeners this past week. Uh, first off, I messed up regarding my Tila Tequila grammar correction when I was talking about Flat Earth. This is from Haley uh, uh, via admin at timesuckpodcast.com. She says, trust me, I'm not green. I'm not a green with stupid dumb fuck Tila Tequila here. But on your Flat Earth Theory episode, you corrected her tweet grammar, but you corrected it incorrectly. I believe you quoted her tweet as... Quote, nobody's been able to prove to me that the earth is round. All she forgot was the apostrophe. Nobody's, as N-O-B-O-D-Y apostrophe S, meaning nobody has, been able to prove blah, blah, blah. You corrected it as nobody's, N-O-B-O-D-I-E-S, which is a different word entirely. Nobody's would be like, oh, guys are a bunch of nobodies. Any crap, that's my rant. Grammar is kind of a huge deal to me. Love the show. Looking forward to the next episode, Haley. Uh, yeah, I, I did fuck up. I, I you know... I think sometimes I get in a hurry, and sometimes I'm an idiot. Uh, but yes, I do know that nobody's is uh, multiple nobodies, and that nobody's with you know uh, the possessive uh, apostrophe is you know belonging to one nobody. But I I am glad you pointed that out because that that is and and how how ironic that I would do that uh, while I'm correcting someone else's grammar. What a fucking hypocrite I can be. But I know, and I know that's not what you're even calling me. But thank you. I, I really do appreciate when you guys point stuff out because this is about learning. This is about learning fun stuff in a fun way, and I need to learn too my mistakes. Uh, also, regarding the flat Earth episode, um, uh, th- this is uh, from Kevin uh, via the Time Suck message boards. Um, just a quick snippet from the flatearthsociety.org. The Flat Earth Society, along with pre- 
previous notable flattists such as Samuel Shenton and S. Robotham believe that there is no end to the Earth and it continues indefinitely. The only edge to the Earth is the one you are standing on. So some math describing this can be found in our blog article, The Mathematics of an Infinite Earth. So he says, uh, it's either a giant ice wall protected by NASA or the Earth actually never ends. Also, I tried to look at their theory of infinite Earth math, but their web- website was hacked. Of course it was. So great, great info. Yes. And, and, and yes, the flat earthers can never agree on exactly how the edge works because it's fucking nonsense. And it's hard to get uh, people to agree on gibberish. So they've gone back and forth and that's where they're at now. But thank you for that. Also, Braden Gramling uh, via email uh, says, hi, Dan, I'm a huge fan of yours. Have been for a long time. So happy you started this podcast. I listened to your recent podcast about the flat earth nutters, society, whatever. I noticed the numbers you have towards the end didn't seem right, which, which I did say. I did say like, I don't know, I'm kind of guessing. So I decided to do a little math on your behalf. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, he says, um, Braden says, you suggested the circumference of their version of the Earth may be close to 35,000 miles, but if you envision the Earth being pressed from the top into a disk, which, which is correct, that's what I did, it is safe to assume the radius of the new disk has, is, is half the current circumference, um, which is 24,901. The circumference equation is C equals pi D, D being 2R, so C equals pi 24 times 24,901. Do that equation, and the new circumference is 78,228 miles. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your word for it, because I am not that good at math. Not like that. Uh, over double the original. That's hilarious. So that would, that would mean, and he says, uh, and would lead you to believe it would cost more than double your original estimate. Thus, their theory is that much more batshit insane. Sure is, Braden. They're going to need double. They're going to need to double up on those NASA fucking ICE security guards. Who knew? Uh, well, thank you guys for that. Uh, thanks for pointing out some stuff. And uh, again, thank you everybody for listening. And uh, um, I would say thanks for the kind messages sent to admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, thanks for all the nice comments left on the comment board, uh, timesuckpodcast.com. Good messages on social media, too. And, and if you want to see next week's episode, uh, if you want to know what it's going to be about, before Monday, follow me on Instagram or Facebook. It's Dan Cummins Comedy is my handle on both, at Dan Cummins Comedy. Uh, I'm going to start posting uh, what the episode is going to be about a few days before it comes out. And if you want each episode the second it comes out on Mondays at noon, be sure to subscribe. Subscribe on iTunes, uh, the Apple Podcast app. Subscribe there. Subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you do it. If you don't subscribe, sometimes it takes a while for the new episodes to show up on these sites. I don't know why. Uh, There's no way I can fix that. It's something on their end. It definitely happens on iTunes. might take a little while for the new episode to pop up. So subscribe, and it's, it's in your player right away. I uh, make a real effort to have it come out exactly at noon on every Monday Pacific time. And, and thanks for all the iTunes ratings, everybody. You guys leave the fucking best, kindest comments. 190 reviews as I record this, so only 10 away from 200 in that bonus Alien Extravaganza episode. So if there are 200 or more the, this week before Friday, you get the bonus episode. If not, it's going to come out uh, the week we do hit 200. Uh, and again, go to Instagram or Facebook, Dan Cummins Comedy, and I'll be able to post that in advance as well. And finally, uh, if you want to see me live, I'll be in downtown Chicago. I think I said finally before. This is the real finally. I'll be in downtown Chicago this weekend at Zany's, uh, Dallas, Tacoma, Raleigh, San Francisco. So much more coming up. Have a great week, everybody, and keep on sucking. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. 
If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.